Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. You're about to listen to a historical episode of Dark Poutine. After episode 149, you will find Scott is no longer with the show. In an effort to maintain continuity and offer listeners as many episodes as possible, we are leaving the episodes in which he co-hosted intact. Thank you. Welcome to Dark Poutine, a podcast covering Canada's creepier side. My name is Mike Brown, creator and host. With me is my good friend, co-host, and oddly miniature sound engineer, Scott Hemingway. Say hello, Scott. What's cracking, y'all? So uh, what's been up since last time? Oh, uh, daughter hurt her arm. Oh, gosh. Yeah. What did she do? Was uh, she like playing football or? No, no, she's not big into football. She uh, was playing on monkey bars. And slipped and fell onto her elbow. And she broke her arm almost exactly a year ago to the date. So. Oh, no. So, yeah, a bit of concern, but she's doing well now. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, aside from that, lots of napping. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, let's get to it. Sure. Dark poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish, as our content contains mature themes, harsh language, and graphic descriptions of violent crimes. Listener discretion is strongly advised. Put on your toque. Grab a double-double and a Nanaimo bar. It's time to scarf down some dark poutine. episode we dive into a dark historical subject we're about to mark the anniversary of a devastating event that took place on december 6th our american listeners who are paying attention in history class will immediately recognize december 6th as the anniversary of the attack on pearl harbor by japanese imperial forces in 1941 although horrific that's not what we'll be talking about today we're heading east to the city i was born in This episode's topic is the Halifax explosion, which, prior to the detonation of the first atomic bomb during the Manhattan Project, was the largest man-made explosion in our planet's history. It happened during World War I on December 6, 1917, 100 years ago. Halifax is a busy port that Allied forces rely on heavily during wartime. Thousands of troops headed for the front lines of the Great War passed through the city on their way to Europe. My dad's father... My grandfather, Private Courtney Tremaine Brown, was one of those soldiers who left the city with the 219th Battalion in April of 1916. As well as troop and battleships, many supply ships navigated the busy harbor daily. One of the ships entering Halifax that morning was a French supply ship named the SS Mont Blanc, under the command of Captain Aimé de la Médique. Aimé la Médique. I am just going to butcher that one all day. (laughs) Okay. I have to say it a bunch more times, so everybody hang on. I'll I'll just cut. Okay. And keep replicating. Yeah, whatever. (laughs) The Mont Blanc had left Gravesend Bay in New York State on December 1st. While in New York, she was laden with high explosive to supply the war efforts in Europe. 
and was due to meet the rest of a military convoy in Halifax prior to setting off for France. Here's a partial list of the Mont Blanc's cargo from John U. Bacon's book, The Great Halifax Explosion. 62 tons of gun cotton, similar to dynamite. 246 tons of a new and particularly combustible airplane fuel called benzol, packed in 494 thin steel drums and stacked three and four barrels high. These were on the deck. 250 tons of TNT and 2,366 tons of pyrrhic acid, a notoriously unstable and poisonous chemical more powerful than its cousin TNT, which was used to make shells the Great War's principal weapon. The Mont Blanc was a floating bomb. Holy crap. Nothing could go wrong. No. No, I absolutely It's as if they had actually said, Let's build a floating bomb. Well, that's what they did, essentially. Uh, the SS IMO was a ship chartered by the Belgian Relief Commission. Although the IMO was scheduled to leave Halifax on December 5th, she was delayed due to her coal stores not being loaded prior to the anti-submarine nets being deployed for the night. So they deployed the anti-submarine nets so the Germans couldn't get into the harbor with their U-boats and blow everything up. Hmm. Ironic. Yeah. Uh, the SS IMO, captained by Norwegian Hakon, H-A-A-K-O-N, Fromm, and crewed by 39 sailors, was granted permission to leave the port at 7.30 a.m. The IMO was without cargo. She rode high in the water, exposing her rudder and propeller, making her hard to steer. Mm. Okay, you can see this coming. The Mont Blanc... <laughs> Having spent the evening outside the harbor, again waiting for the submarine nets to be removed, started moving at 7.30 a.m. as well. Francis Mackey, an experienced harbor pilot who had just boarded the night before, was there to see the ship into Bedford Basin. So for those of you who don't know, uh, when a large ship enters port, sometimes uh, an experienced pilot from the city that they're entering will uh, board the ship and steer it into port. And that's what uh, Francis Mackey was to do with the Mont Blanc. Again, quite the uh, nautical uh, education here. Yeah. Uh, Nova Scotian. <laughs> <laughs> he had requested a guard ship due to the cargo carried by Mont Blanc, but none was provided. The SS IMO met a tramp steamer from the United States called the SS Clara, which was coming up the wrong side of the harbor on the west. The two ships, Imo and Clara, navigated past each other, but it put uh, Imo a little off course and on the wrong side of the harbor. The Imo then had to pass a tugboat, Stella Maris, which forced her even further toward the Dartmouth side of the harbor. This is not where she should have been. The captain of the Stella Maris said Imo was traveling at such a speed he had to take his ship closer to the western shore to avoid contact with the ship. Pilot Mackey, aboard the Mont Blanc, saw the IMO coming when she was just over a kilometer away. Mackey noticed at the time that the two ships may be on a collision course and began to take action. Mackey gave a single blast from the Mont Blanc's horn to indicate his right-of-way. He was met by the IMO signaling two blasts, indicating a negative reply.
After a brief argument with Pilot Mackey, who was sure the ships were about to come together, the Mont Blanc's captain, Le Medic, ordered the ship to hard to starboard. That's right for all you landlubbers. They hoped the IMO would do the same. She didn't. The Mont Blanc's whistle blew a single time again, but the IMO again signaled to the negative and kept her course. Oh, boy. People on shore and sailors on other ships saw a crash was imminent and could do nothing but watch. Finally, reacting to the situation, the IMO gave three blasts of their horn, indicating that they were reversing their engines. It was too late. Although both ships had finally cut their engines... Momentum caused the Mont Blanc and the IMO to careen into one another around 8.45 a.m. Both the Mont Blanc and the IMO were losers in a dangerous, quote, game of chicken, as John New Bacon said in his book. Some of the benzoyl barrels had been knocked loose and tipped over, sending the liquid everywhere. Sparks from the collision started a fire aboard the Mont Blanc, which ignited the highly flammable benzoyl on the deck. Remember, there are 246 tons of this volatile liquid on the, in the barrels. Jeez. Oh, as well as all the other stuff. Yeah. Thick black smoke billowed from the now raging and quickly out of control fire on the Mont Blanc. Tugs and a couple other vessels tried to knock down the fire with hoses, but the heat was too intense. Many Halifax and Dartmouth residents gathered near the shore and at other vantage points to watch the spectacular fire. Yeah, I'm not going to lie. I totally would be one of those people. Well, yeah. They didn't have cable back then, so exactly. what else? What do you know, Netflix? <laughs> right. Yeah. 1917. Jeez. Fearing for their lives, having the knowledge they were standing on a six million pound bomb that happened to be on fire, the 21 crew members of the Mont Blanc piled into two lifeboats with pilot Mackey. The captain, Lemedic, was the last off the doomed ship. As they were bailing out, the captain of another boat passing came alongside, offering the Mont Blanc's crew safety on his boat. No one from the Mont Blanc bothered to warn the friendly captain of the danger, and they ignored him, yelling at each other in French while scampering into their lifeboats. Oh, boy. Captain Ralph Smith also headed toward the Mont Blanc to help, but saw the crew scrambling into their lifeboats and rowing away hard. No kidding. <laughs> Again, from John U. Bacon's book. Smith recalled one of them stood on a bench in the boat, waved his arms, and started yelling something in French and pointing toward Halifax. Smith said the word was probably foreign, but sounded something like explosion. Oh, man. The Mont Blanc's crew rowed as fast as they could toward the shore. They rowed past Captain Fromm and the crew from the IMO, but they did not warn them of the danger. Fromm had no idea that the Mont Blanc was a floating bomb and thought the crew was simply rowing away from the intense fire. Well, yes, but bomb also. <laughs> but bomb also. Uh, from the Mont Blanc's lifeboat, Pilot Mackey hailed the crew of a tugboat, Hilford. He tried to warn them. One of the Hilford's crew, Lieutenant Commander James Murray, knew that the Mont Blanc was carrying a lot of explosives. And seeing the fire... He ordered the Hilford immediately to Pier 9, where he started to warn others. Mackey was shouting at everyone he could see to warn them of the danger of the imminent explosion, but no one seemed to hear him. I guess they were too focused on this big fire. Well, yeah, uh, I'm yeah. sure that their attention was on the fire, not the guy waving his arms. Yeah. The rowboats reached the Dartmouth shore 10 minutes after leaving the Mont Blanc near a Mi'kmaq settlement. 
They left the boats unsecured and sprinted for the woods. One of the residents, Aggie March, who had her baby in her arms, stood watching the commotion. As one sailor sprinted past, he grabbed the baby and continued running. He knew she would chase him, thus saving her life. They didn't stop to warn or save anyone else. Move. Over in Halifax, Lieutenant Commander James Murray had started to raise the alarm about the potential of a massive explosion. People were told to run for their lives. Many did, but many did not. At 9.04 and 35 seconds, a time later verified by the seismic records from the day, the explosion happened. Massive blast released energy that was that of approximately 2.9 kilotons of TNT, or 12,000 gigajoules. That's a lot of joules. I'm not a physicist, but I don't... In fact, it's a giga of the joules. Exactly. The SS Mont Blanc was blown to smithereens. Pieces of her hull flew 300 meters into the air. Iron shrapnel from the destroyed ship flew like missiles and fell down across the city. One of the Mont Blanc's guns, melted and twisted, landed over five and a half kilometers north, and her huge anchor crashed down over three kilometers to the south. There are memorials at both spots, and the anchor and the gun are there. Wow. Yep. The heat at the center of the explosion is estimated to have been 5,000 degrees Celsius, so in other words, very hot. Yeah, I think my oven can only do like 500. Yeah. <laughs> okay. The blast wave sped away from the epicenter at a speed of 1,000 meters per second. White smoke rose 1,600 meters into the air and was visible many kilometers away. So a big mushroom cloud. Yeah. The sound wave from the blast was felt as far away as uh, Cape Breton, over 200 kilometers away, and even in PEI, like an island mm. out in the Atlantic off the coast of... Cape Breton. It said the water was blown out of the harbor and a tsunami formed as it rushed back in to fill the space left by the explosion. Wow. Sailors and dock workers lost their lives and the Halifax waterfront was devastated. Nearly every structure within an 800 meter radius was completely leveled. Most of the buildings in a 2.6 kilometer radius were badly damaged. More than 6,000 people were homeless and another 25,000 had insufficient shelter from the brutal winter cold, and this was instantly. Oh, man. The extent of the damage was staggering. 548 buildings burned, 824 buildings collapsed, and another 1,249 buildings were completely wrecked. It's hard to visualize all that. Absolutely. You can see a lot of it on, like, the CBC websites or uh, Nova Scotia archive mm -hmm. sites. Mi'kmaq settlements that stood in Tufts Cove and Wright's Cove on the Dartmouth side were destroyed and a handful of residents there died. Those communities had existed before the Europeans even set foot in North America. At one point, about 1.7 kilometers away, was the predominantly black settlement known as Africville. Africville was settled by former slaves fleeing the United States via the Underground Railroad. Four Africville residents died that day, and many local buildings were heavily damaged, including the Baptist Church. 
Some buildings were later restored, but they did not receive the funding that other neighborhoods did. I wonder why. Yeah, that's sad. Yeah. Particularly hard hit was the neighborhood of Richmond in the Halifax Harbor. It had been closest to the blast. Here's an excerpt from the CBC radio program, Between Ourselves, broadcast on the 50-year anniversary of the explosion. Hosts Bill Fulton and Paul Hershon give a brief, brief description of the devastation. Then, Halifax resident Albert Wood gives his recollection of being peppered with glass. The streets of Richmond were littered with heads, arms, legs, and mutilated trunks. People indoors were killed outright when the houses collapsed, or they lay with broken limbs trapped in the ruins. From the completely flattened area of Richmond into the heart of Halifax, most of the house frames and roofs survived the blast, but their doors and windows were shattered, and so was all the plaster on the walls and ceilings. Windows became slivers of broken glass, driven with the velocity of a bullet, so that thousands of men, women, and children were slashed or stabbed, and many were blinded. Albert Wood was a young schoolboy at the time, but he recalls the disaster quite clearly. We were all, you know, cut up with glass, and... Uh... Oh, sort of like a piece of raw meat. We were so peppered with glass that uh, years after, you were still picking glass out of yourself. And in fact, a cousin of mine, oh, I guess it was 20 years after, had a piece of glass come out of the back of her neck or someplace that uh, stuck in there. But it was a common thing for years afterward to, you'd scratch your face or your head or the back of your neck and you'd feel something sharp and you'd dig around at it and it would be a piece of glass working out. It stayed in all that time. At least 250 damaged eyes had to be removed following the explosion and 50 people were blinded completely. Local doctors and hospitals were inundated with people seeking treatment for injuries. Here's another bit of audio from the CBC show Between Ourselves broadcast on the same day. This time, Dr. J.R. Karstan gives his account of treating the injured and dying. Immediately, we started uh, to sew up cuts and look after, so far as we could, eyes that were gone. There were a, a great many people suffered from cuts about the face and hands, and, and a great many eyes were lost. And the house was practically filled with people in this condition. My wife and I sewed up as many as we could. Such suture material as I had was quickly used up with the wholesale demands upon it. And we began to use ordinary cotton thread, sterilized beforehand in a kind of a way. Later that day, Dr. Corston went to Camp Hill Hospital, and he tells what he found. The increasing numbers of uh, broken arms and lacerated faces and such like came into the hospital there, oh, by the hundreds, you might say, and we kept sewing up cuts and looking after broken arms and things uh, all day, and there were some more serious injuries, too, fractured pelvis and such like a good many deaths among those. Uh, but the point is the, the number, the number of them. We had four, four teams working 
uh, when we got things going a bit, working in different parts of the hospital and just doing them as fast as we could. All told, more than 1,600 people died instantly and over 9,000 were injured. Another 300 people would later perish. Wow. The damages were estimated at $35 million, roughly $570 million today, so half a billion dollars. Sounds about right. Yeah. There were many stories from that day, but one of note uh, was that of train dispatcher for the Canadian Government Railways, Vince Coleman. Now, they did a Heritage Minute about that on CBC years ago. I think you can still see it on YouTube if you Google that. Vince was warned of the impending disaster by a sailor sent ashore by his commanding officer. The overnight express train from New Brunswick carrying 300 passengers was due soon. Holy crap, can you imagine? You're coming into Halifax and you get blown up. Yeah, not the uh, arrival you'd be expecting. Nope. Uh, Vince sent the following message. Hold up the train, ammunition ship a fire in the harbor making for Pier 6 and will explode. Guess this will be my last message. Goodbye, boys. How ominous. Right? Yeah, poor guy. It's said that Vince left with a co-worker after sending that message, but realized there were more trains inbound. Vince Coleman returned to his post in the telegraph office at the foot of Richmond Street near Pier 6. He was killed trying to save others. The memory of Vince Coleman's heroism is honored by a few memorials throughout the city, and I think they've even named like a bit of a street after him, like Vince Street or something like that. Well, in in, in this situation, hero is the absolute appropriate label for this man. Yeah, for sure. Families searched for missing loved ones. Pilot Francis Mackey, who survived the blast after being blown into a tree with the Mont Blanc's Captain Lemedic, he made his way back across the harbor. Surprisingly, only one crew member from the Mont Blanc died after being hit by flying debris. That's that's crazy. Like, hard to believe that. Well, they ran into the woods. (laughs) I know, but... (laughs) Yeah, all right, you got me there. Yeah. Yeah. Historian Janet Maybe wrote that Mackey made his way back to Halifax and found his family in Halifax Common. It's a public park there with other survivors. One of his daughters had uh, her face badly cut by flying glass. She was bleeding. Mm. He and his family returned to their home and found their windows broken out, of course, as were many. They cleaned up the glass, put storm windows over the broken ones and sat down for a pot of tea at midnight. It had been a hell of a long day for pilot Francis Mackey. I just, it, I get stuck on the thought that it, the same day, explosion. Yep. Largest one on the planet yes. at that time. Yes. Having tea at night. Yes. People began pulling the injured and dead from the rubble. A makeshift mortuary was set up at a local school drawing on lessons learned after receiving bodies from another disaster just over five years previous the sinking of the RMS Titanic. So if you didn't know, there's a lot of uh, people who drowned during the Titanic disaster that are buried in Halifax. Hmm. Relief trains were sent from different towns across Nova Scotia and even as far away as Boston. The citizens of Halifax were so grateful they sent the city of Boston a Christmas tree in 1918. In 1971, the Lunenburg County Christmas Tree Producers Association revived the sentiment and sent a Christmas tree to Boston again. I actually worked for the Lunenburg County Christmas Tree Producers Association as a, as a guy who stood up the trees so the guy grading them could, ta- could tag them. Oh. 
I worked there one day. And, and how was the job? It was terrible. <laughs> <laughs> I hated it. I hated every second of it. But I was expecting something more positive. It was not positive. <laughs> 5 a.m. Oh, yeah, you lost me there. Yeah, exactly. The Nova Scotia government took over seeing to this yearly gift of a massive Christmas tree that now stands in Boston Common every year as a gesture of goodwill and remembrance of assistance all those years ago. So is it still, that still happens? That still happens, I guess. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Interesting, right? Very. Um, By evening on December 6th, 1917, the snow was falling. As if the massive explosion wasn't enough for the poor people of Halifax to handle... A huge blizzard hit and frustrated relief efforts dumping a whopping 41 centimeters, that's 16 inches for you yanks, of snow on the city. So 16 inches of snow. In the same day, you're going from... Explosion. Explosion, extreme heat, 5,000 degrees of it. Yes, to blizzard. To houses destroyed, homes, buildings. No place to, no shelter. Here's some snow. Yeah. You can't really like... uh, be prepared for a day like that. Nope, nope, not 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 your typical day. In no, Halifax. I wouldn't. I'm not prepared today for that. No, let's not talk about earthquakes. Oh, although cleanup and reconstruction began right away, and temporary shelters were quickly set up in late January of 1918. Almost two months later, five thousand people were still without permanent shelter. Yikes. Mm. Authorities started to look for someone to pin the disaster on. This is what happens. Yeah. Lots of speculation arose that German saboteurs had caused the blast. We were at war with Germany, after all. Yeah, I can understand why they would maybe jump to that conclusion. Yep. The Norwegian helmsman of the SS IMO was arrested on suspicion of being a German spy. Papers? Let me see your papers. (laughs) He was later released. Thank goodness. Just Norwegian. Eh, Norway, Germany. Eh. (laughs) Ultimately, the blame for the collision and resulting explosion was laid upon the SS Mont Blanc's captain, M.A. Lemedic. Did I slaughter it? I don't think I did that. You sounded pretty good there. Okay. The pilot, Francis Mackey, and Commander F. Evan Wyatt of the Royal Canadian Navy, the chief examining officer in charge of the harbor, gates, and anti-submarine defenses. There's those darn submarine nets again. It's, I am just picturing like fishing nets. Yeah, I don't and know. And thinking like, I don't think that's going to stop a sub. No, I don't know what they did. Dominion Rec Commissioner L.A. Demers said, it was the Mont Blanc's responsibility alone to ensure that she avoided a collision at all costs. Obviously, considering the cargo she was <laughs> transporting. Uh, the three men were charged with manslaughter and criminal negligence. Eventually, charges were dropped against Lemedique and Mackey. Wyatt was eventually acquitted in April of 1918 after a brief trial. One bright spot from the explosion was the development of the Canadian Institute for the Blind, or the CNIB. It came about as the disaster led to a deeper understanding of blindness and the damage to the eyes by the medical doctors who uh, were attending. I had no idea of that linkage or that history. Mm Mm-hmm. Although badly damaged, the SSIMO was repaired and sent back to sea, renamed, and I'm not going to try to pronounce that Norwegian word, but it means the governor, in 1920. She served as a whale oil tanker until 1921, not a very long time, 
when a drunken helmsman drove her hopelessly aground near the Falklands, where she was ultimately abandoned. That ship does not have a good history with captains. No, no, something's not good. No. That, my friends, is the story of the Halifax explosion. So here's a little bit of our personal experience with it. I grew up 60 miles down the lighthouse route from Halifax in a sleepy little town called Bridgewater. And like a lot of other kids in Nova Scotia, uh, the Halifax explosion was a fascinating thing to me. Uh, there was all always in the museum and all that kind of stuff. And every year around the anniversary, there were TV shows and radio shows about it. Uh, how about you? Did you hear any of that stuff here in BC? Or Nope. Okay. Well, uh, later in life, uh, you know, but it it certainly wasn't uh, something that I learned about until, you know, probably in my late teens, early 20s. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, do you feel like you learned something from this today? Yeah, absolutely. It's, um, I have watched since uh, my, you know, uh, early 20s, I've, I've done a fair amount of viewing and reading up on the event, but there's still a, a lot of this was new to me. I, I, you know, I didn't know what led to the collision. Yeah. I, d- I didn't know how that happened, yeah. I, you know? And so it's, uh, you know, like a lot of things that still happen today, it's uh, human error. Yeah. You know, it, it's, it's, technology has, ha- has changed, but, uh, human error hasn't. Yeah. So if we go back to it, like there, the way they had to communicate with each other was like waving at each other. <laughs> And like <laughs> blowing, so blowing their horns and stuff like that. Yeah, you know? like, it's so true. You, there was you, nobody was sending texts to each other. No, hey yo, I uh, got bombs on no, here. Here's Turn. A, here's a Facebook message from <laughs> the the IMO to the uh, to to the Mont Blanc. No, no, G, it's just GTFO horn, <laughs> horn, <laughs> and then double horn. No, it, and it's crazy. You know, like you're you let a horn uh, saying move, please, and the one you get back is no. Yeah. And it's like, what other, okay, at that point, you're just like, well. That's an interesting argument. Like, it's, okay, I asked, I guess we're going to crash now. Yeah. Like, it's, I don't know what was going through the Norwegian captain's head. And I don't, like, I mean, I think we have more information about the Mont Blanc for some reason. Yeah. But there wasn't a lot of uh, talk about what went through Fromm's head, which I don't uh, know. Insert joke. No. <laughs> no, that's that's totally not right. No, that's why I said insert it. Make okay. it let everybody else make the wrong joke. Sure. The appropriate joke. <laughs> I read uh, Hugh McLennan's book, Barometer Rising. It's a novel about the Halifax explosion as an assignment in school. Mm. Um, that's It's a really good book, but interestingly, um, it's not – it's really expensive on Amazon. I think there's oh, really? like a new print of it coming. I don't know. It doesn't make any sense. Mm. It was like 40 bucks for like a Kindle version. Well, let's not forget one of the books for the previous uh, episode. It was a million dollars on Amazon. Well, it, the book actually was like $11, but it was a million dollars for the shipping. shipping. That's right. Yeah. That's, that's right. Speaking of ships. Hey. Oh, yeah. So – Another reason I feel connected to this event is that my family had some personal stories around the explosion. My dad's mother lived through it. She was 14 years old at the time. Her name was uh, Rabina, but everyone, including us grandkids, called her Ruby or Rube. As she said, grandma or nanny made her feel old. Well, she was kind of (laughs) old. 
<laughs> you know, that's not rubbing in my. No, she was a sweetheart though. She was an old Scottish lady. Uh, she had actually sailed on the Lusitania. Wow, another boat that sank. <laughs> uh, but she was not on it when it sank. She sailed on it at another time. I will never take a ferry with anybody in your family. <laughs> right? Oh, we are we are very uh, nautical. We like boats. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah. So at the time of the explosion, Ruby. My grandmother lived in Dartmouth, and that's Halifax's twin city across the harbor. Mm. We mentioned it earlier. And um, I checked in with Dad, and as far as we can recall, uh, Ruby had to stay home from school in the morning of the explosion to help with chores around the house. So she wasn't in school at the time that the blast happened. She wasn't injured at all, but uh, when she returned to her school, which was heavily damaged in the explosion, a large beam had crashed down onto where her desk had been. Jeez. She didn't mention if anybody else was actually perished in her school. Maybe she didn't want to talk about it. But, uh, you know, she always said to dad, like, he wouldn't be here if that if she had been at school. In such a, uh, I, I don't want to say small town. It's not like uh, a, a tiny little uh, hut, but um, small enough where, the loss of 2,000 people is going to impact everybody. Absolutely. There's there's going to be somebody you know. Yeah. 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 Crazy. Um, we also had a teapot, uh, which was the main piece of a really nice uh, silver tea service. At the time of the explosion, it belonged to Ruby's sister, Lil. So I guess my great aunt, Lil. The teapot was damaged in the blast. I don't know how or how that happened. I guess it it got flattened or something. Uh, but uh, Lil gave the teapot, the broken teapot, to Ruby, and Ruby had it restored. The artisan who repaired it put an engraving on the bottom stating that the service was damaged during the explosion and repaired after. So I remember reading that as a kid. Mm. So it really yeah. resonated. Uh, the repair went so well that Lil wanted it back, but Ruby did not give it to her. <laughs> And they never talked no, again. <laughs> I don't think I don't think that was the case. Uh, Dad ended up inheriting the teapot, so that's how I got my grubby little hands on it. Hmm. But uh, uh, it no longer belongs to the Brown family. It has since been donated to the Dartmouth Heritage Museum. Hmm. Yeah, I wouldn't mind checking that out. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Uh, so, thank you to my dad for uh, for sharing his little stories with me. Many thanks. Yeah, so. That's it for this episode. That's uh, it's been it's been an interesting one. It's a little different. Yeah, yeah, um, which I think is good. I think uh, uh, we want to cover a wide range yeah. uh, of interesting topics. So I think it's uh, it is some dark poutine, though. I would say it 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 qualifies. Yeah, it, quali- does. it qualifies. It's really insane. I think that even people who are aware of yep. it yep. St- are not aware that it was the largest man-made explosion prior to like hiroshima yeah Yeah. like that that's that says quite a lot about the explosion like about the about the the event well yeah i mean you know if you see how far away like where you go to see the memorial Mm -hmm. uh, where the anchor is 
I mean, it's five kilometers away. It's hard to fathom that. Like that, like, we're not talking about a dinghy anchor. No, you no, know? this thing is massive. It, yeah, yeah. Or the gun. Actually, Probably I think it was what? the gun that was five kilometers away. The anchor is three. Three, and they're both like opposite ways. Like one is north and one is south. I would imagine a ship anchor's got to be at least a couple ton. Eh? Oh, for sure. Like, wow. Yeah, it's just it's it's behooving. You're not using that word, right? I just did. I don't care. (laughs) Okay. Well, anyway, if you would like to learn more about this and other episodes of Dark Poutine, check out our website, www.darkpoutine.com. If you have any story ideas, questions, comments, or just want to say hi, say hi, you can reach us via email at darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. Please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and tell your friends about us. Also, please subscribe to us on your favorite podcast directory, Hearts. Or we'll get you. No. Scott might. Ah, nah. I give you hugs. Sounds like a lot of work. (laughs) If you're so inclined, it would be awesome if you left a five-star review and comments on iTunes. Every little bit helps. So, don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple. Thanks to one of our listeners, Erica, this episode's outro music is a little different. It's nice to have a fan. She shared with us a beautiful song about the Halifax explosion that her brother Darcy had a hand in creating. He was kind enough to share it with us. It's by artist Joshua Smith, and you can find a link to the song in our show notes, or head over to joshuasmith.bandcamp.com. Here is The Day the City Died. Thank you.
mixed up the signals to the SSIMO. The city died. 